Mark 3 verse 1, speaking of Jesus, it said, again he entered into the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now watch this, verse 5, and he looked around at them with what? Anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, hallelujah, and his hand was restored, double hallelujah. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So when the news broke of Muhammad Ali exiting earth, um, a lot of us got nostalgic. I was really too young to see him in his prime. His first fight in Madison Square Garden uh, with Frazier, I think I was like a year and a half old. So I'm a, I was a young bug. Tyson was the fighter of my generation, but Ali of my parents' generation. And, and although I've seen so much of the footage, and he was bigger than life, um, he was controversial. Uh, there is the report, I, I think I even shared it here a few weeks ago, where in the prime of his career, and, and nobody could touch him, he was quite arrogant. Confident, if you give him the benefit of the doubt, arrogant if you're realistic, but nobody could touch him. And he was flying on a plane, and he refused to buckle up, and the stewardess came back and said, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle up. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess said, Superman doesn't need a plane. <laughs> Go, girl. He did float like a butterfly. He did sting like a bee. But he got stung, and he's gone. Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease is terrible. I, all of us would classify any debilitating disease as awful, but Parkinson's is its own uh, brand of struggle. And when I see struggling people with Parkinson's, with ALS, with cancer, with MS, with cerebral palsy, with uh, lymphomas and mental illness, and all of these afflictions that you and I have to recognize occur all over the world without regard to race or gender or nationality. I, I see people all the time here in my neighborhood, in the community, and I can visually know they're afflicted with something that was not God's original design for mankind. And there is a holy affront in me to see one made in the image of God suffering in something that is the result of man's sin and the devil's hatred. And so when I see it, 
It offends the sense of righteousness in me. I say in myself, that ought to not be so. And yet I'm going to tell you the bigger struggle for me is, why do I not have the faith to change things? Why don't I operate in a level of confidence in Jesus Christ where I can regularly, without hesitation, walk up to the afflicted one with Parkinson's or ALS or cancer or leukemia? Why don't I live there? And quite frankly, it's a maddening question at times. And I don't want to live out the rest of my days like that. And I don't want to hide behind a religious curtain that says nice cliche prayers but is absent of the power of God. I don't want to do what Paul said he would never do. Do you remember what he said? He said, our gospel came to you not in word only, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. Paul didn't have a different Holy Spirit residing in him than you do or I do. And as much as I love my cessationist friends and I respect their position, though I absolutely refute it and disagree with it, I will say this, I do not believe that we should have any less expectation of supernatural healing today than Paul did in his day. I believe the Lord is the healer. So let's look at a passage of Scripture because one of the things that your pastors, your elders, and other leaders here at Newbridge are uh, petitioning the Lord for and pressing into, moving ahead, not, not asking permission, but expectation of God saying, Lord, we believe this, it is this issue of healing. And so when we look at Mark chapter 3, you're going to find yourself in the passage somewhere, and I'm hoping that if you find yourself on the wrong side of this text, you might follow Jesus to the right side of it. And so let's look. Three simple points. The first is this. We're going to see in the synagogue there that day, two hearts contrasted. It is the heart of Jesus versus the heart of the religious establishment that was gathered in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. Giving you some background very quickly, Jesus had already, it's only three chapters into Mark, that's why I love his gospel, because he gets to action really quick. Three chapters into Mark, and Jesus has already been healing. He's already been casting out demons. Crowds are growing. He's already become controversial. He's already gotten in trouble with the religious establishment who didn't like the way he did things, because in their minds he disregarded their, uh, their law. He disregarded God's law. He definitely didn't give um, any kind of agreement with their man made traditions. And they had wrongly interpreted the Sabbath to the point when Jesus did something for good on the Sabbath, Sabbath that violated their understanding of what was to be done on the Sabbath or what was not to be done on the Sabbath. The angst against Jesus was growing amongst the religious leaders. So here they are together on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. And we're going to see their hearts contrasted with Jesus. First of all, Jesus goes to the synagogue and being the shepherd and the merciful Savior that he is, he sees a need in the synagogue. Look in verse number one. He entered the synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand. I don't know about you, but sometimes we get in the habit of just rushing through verses in scripture. And, and I want to slow down. There's a man there and his life is hindered physically. And because of a physical hindrance in that day, it would have been hindered in a ripple effect hindrance into different areas. He wouldn't have been able to go to the temple. 
I'm surprised that, that he was allowed into the synagogue because depending on where you were at that time, there were even probably some tight regulations in certain places where those that were afflicted or sick or ceremonially defiled couldn't come into even synagogues at times. Um, but this man, it would have affected his family life. It would have affected his ability to work. Maybe he wasn't able to work. We see all throughout Scripture those that were physically maimed or afflicted or, or given up to a life of begging just dependent on the alms of the people. And so he comes into the synagogue. And, and when people are pressing into an atmosphere like that, they're looking for their God. They're hoping for something. I mean, if nothing else, his body was going through the dutiful um, mechanics of being in the synagogue on the Sabbath day for, to hear some singing, to hear some reading of the scriptures, to gain some teaching. He was there, but he was struggling. But man, it was a great day for him to be there because the Messiah was there. Jesus walks in and he sees the man, and he notes the man's withered hand. Now, let's go to the second form here. Jesus saw a need in the synagogue, but the Pharisees saw a nemesis in the synagogue. Look in verse number two. They watched Jesus. Do you get that? They just watched him. And to see whether or not he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Why? I mean, wouldn't you like to see somebody healed today? Wouldn't you like, boy, that was weak. Uh, <laughs> They wanted to see if Jesus was going to heal this guy, not so they could rejoice, not so they could connect it to messianic prophecies about the Messiah when he comes healing, so they might grow in their confidence in Jesus is the Messiah. But look at the rest of verse 2. They wanted to see if he was going to heal him on the Sabbath so they could accuse him. The Greek term there translated in the ESV, accused, is a, is a word that means we get our word categorized from it in the English language. They wanted to make sure that they could put Jesus in the Sabbath-breaking slot. Because they actually believed that if he healed the man on the Sabbath day, that would constitute work. If it constituted work, it would violate their version of the Sabbath. And so to them, the religious spirit, the religious mindset, the religious power players and controllers, they were watching the healer because if he had the audacity to set somebody free, to heal them, to work a miracle on the Sabbath day, they were going to have further evidence going towards their indictment of him. Well, Jesus didn't play their game, hallelujah. He still doesn't, by the way. Verse number three, Jesus offered opportunity. So Jesus knows what's going on, and in the middle of the synagogue service, he says to the man with the withered hand, just a simple invitation, come here, come to me, come here, come here. It's usually the first thing any of us really hear Jesus say. And Jesus is constantly inviting, no matter whether we're spiritually crippled, forgive the word, or, 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 or relationally maimed, or, um, you know, shrunken. This man had a withered or a shrunken arm. When Jesus found me, I had a shrunken, withered soul. But I, I can tell you, he is constantly saying to those that religion will never embrace, he's constantly saying, I will take you as you are. Why don't you come where you are? Now notice, he did call the man unto himself. It did involve the man's willingness to obey the very simple command of Jesus Christ to come to where Jesus was calling him. And Jesus is offering this man an opportunity. No questions seem to be asked by the man. I'm sure there was some awkwardness in that small synagogue where everybody had gathered. But look at verse number four, because as Jesus offered opportunity, the Pharisees offered nothing. That's all they had to offer. Zilch, zippo, nada, nil, nothing. 
That's what dead religion, which was characteristic of this scene anyway. Not, now listen, look at verse 4. He said to them, he says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And very interestingly, the Pharisees kept silent. That's just kind of the way they operated when Jesus started talking because they couldn't win. They could talk about him, but very few of them wanted to talk to him. Because when you're wrestling with omniscience, how many of you know you're going to lose? So the Pharisees, if you're, not, if you're new to your Bible, you don't know who they are, they're typically portrayed in Scripture as, as the bad guys. Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. It's not because they weren't sincere towards the Lord. But by the time we get to the Gospels and that New Testament time, uh, the Jewish religion had been so ornamented with traditions, many of them in an effort to help people revere and honor God in a society dominated by Roman paganism. And so I believe, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, I believe the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes probably at their core thought they were doing right before Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Except they were so blinded by their traditions and blinded by the ornaments that they had hung on the tree of God's truth that when anything didn't fit with their paradigm, they rejected it. And Jesus did not fit within the paradigm, uh, paradigm of Phariseeism. Even to the extent now that Jesus is about to heal a guy, and Jesus knows their hearts, and he asks them, hey, it's the Sabbath day. Is the Sabbath a day where we ought to do good or to do evil? And nobody had an answer. They didn't know what to say. Now, very interestingly, I'm smiling when I say it because I got a little carnal streak in me. I love it when Jesus kind of turns the tables, no pun intended, on the religious crowd. I just kind of get off on that a little bit. I'm like, yeah, come on, say it again. So forgive me. Um, or get in on it with me, however you want to do that. But I, my, my point being this is that Jesus wasn't smiling. Look in verse number five. Jesus defied their unexpectant religion. Look at verse number five. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he turns his attention to the man with a withered hand. He says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, I know you know your Bible, and I know that you have seen lots of miracles on the pages of Scripture. And we, we read about them, and I tell you what, we've educated ourselves into being dull about the things of God. They're, they're so commonplace when we read about them, but they're so rare in our level of expectancy for them. But notice that Jesus looked at those who were presumably the big-time reps of God, the Pharisees that were gathered in the synagogue, it was a religious setting, it was um, with religious leaders, and yet Jesus is not really into the religious dynamics of everything. He sees a guy that's hurting. He sees a guy that's life is hindered, and he wants to heal him because he's compassionate, and he loves, and, and Jesus is always going about doing good, and so he's right there, and he wants to heal the guy, but he also wants to take the moment to expose the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. And so when they were silent, and doesn't, the Bible doesn't portray Jesus as angry very often. And, and matter of fact, in, in our churches today, people always want to paint him as never being angry. He's just happy Jesus. He's, you know, he's more like a, you know, a, a moony, a hippie or something like that, and it, rather than being you know, the son of God. But the Bible says he was angry. Now, what was he angry at? He wasn't angry at immorality. He wasn't angry at political issues. 
He wasn't angry at, at um, you know, um, debauchery or anything like that. He's angry at hardened, dead, religious hearts in the place of worship and learning and teaching. And it was, those very, it was that same spirit that was governing the Pharisees that made that synagogue the least likely place where this man would ever be healed. Chances are it probably wasn't his first time there, but it would probably be the, well, it would be, it would be the last time he'd ever uh, enter into that place withered and maimed or withered and struggling. So he looks upon them, but notice it's not just anger, he was grieved. He's grieved. Those are two very negative emotions going on in the heart of the Son of God, and it's in the context of people not believing and trusting Him. And people, as a matter of fact, even stronger, kind of setting up an atmosphere where the breakthrough of others was not even going to be a possibility. They were actually wanting to resist Jesus' uh, ability and desire to heal this man. And so the Son of God was mad, but I love the fact that He didn't say, well, I don't want... I don't want to make things awkward for people. I, I, you know, I don't want to push the envelope here. Maybe I'll just get with this guy afterwards and we'll let church be church this morning. And Jesus actually exposed their hardness of heart by confronting them with an undeniable miracle. So he says, stretch out your hand. And the man, he stretches out his hand. and whew, I bet he started saying, ah, Yahweh, hallelujah, praise God. You know, I mean... It's, it's just, an, it, it reads so benign in, in, in our Bible, but you've got to put yourself in the sandals of that man. He, he just got part of his life back that he hadn't had for a long time, and Jesus did it. And so naturally, the Pharisees began to rejoice, and they began to shout, and they began to praise, and they began to bow before the Messiah, right? Check it out, verse number six. The Pharisees denied the people their breakthrough. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, I'm not going to get into the Herodians, just bad guys with bad guys here, against Jesus, how to destroy him. Now, I'm just going to ask you to think through that. The response of the, the, let's just use a very generic term, the religious leaders, the ones that are more committed to holding fast to their tradition than they are to being open to what Jesus is doing, their response to the miracle, not only is do they not receive Jesus or worship him or even implore or, or inquire of him, they say, let's go out, let's have an executive team meeting, we have got to kill him. And they counsel with those that are loyal to Herod, and they immediately begin to plot his death and demise. That is how strongly, it's a microcosm, it's a, a picture of what can happen to our hearts when they are hardened by the nothingness of religion. And friends, I would love to stand up here all day and point to the Pharisees, but I know that I got a little of that virus running through my bloodstreams on some issues, and you do too. There's some things that our hearts hardened against because we can't control it and we can't explain it. And we are post-enlightenment Christians who are educated. We believe in the objectivity of the Word of God. We are suspicious of miracles because after all, all of these shysters on TV and what they do with miracles and they're taking people's money and it turns out that they're fraudulent. I get all of that. I see all of that too. Let me ask you a question. What does that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with the Son of God as portrayed in the preserved Word of God? What does that have to do with truth? 
Could you imagine if we applied that mindset all across the board in our lives? We'd never drive a car because there's such thing as recalls. We'd never go to a ball game because they make errors out there. We wouldn't get in the swimming pool because we know what those little kids do in the pool sometimes. And so we forsake the good on the altar of the negative possibility, and it's fine at the pool if you want to do that. That might even make sense. But the point being is when it comes to our walk with Jesus, you never interpret a doctrine based on the way it's abused. You never look at the validity of a doctrine based on how other people abuse it. You say, what does Jesus say? And so the Pharisees went out to kill him. But I love it. I love my Lord. Listen, I just love watching him do what he does. He's resisted his entire earthly ministry. It's an understatement. But he just keeps pressing in for the glory of the Father. That was his assignment. I'm going to fulfill everything that the Father has called me to do. I'm going to glorify him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to make him known. And I'm going to love the people. I'm even going to love you, Judas. I know what you're about to do. But before you do it, let me wash your feet. And so everywhere that Jesus went, he's just kind of uh, uh, compelled by the desire to please his father and the love within him constraining him to do good unto people. And he was beaten for it, and he was mocked for it, he was misunderstood for it, he was rejected for it, he was ultimately crucified for it, but you don't see him stopping. He's still not done. He's still pressing into people that, that he loves and going after people that aren't necessarily wanting to be gone after. And so we get down into verses 7 and 8. The two hearts have been contrasted between Jesus and the Pharisee heart. And now we have two audiences coming. And wow, this is our audience here today. It's the audience every time we gather in the name of Jesus. First, there are the close followers that are gathered. So in verse 7 at the beginning, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. I was talking with my son yesterday about ministry and stress and time, and I don't always do a good job handling that, and Landon has a little of a a prophet streak in him, and he was sharing with his dad in a very forthright way that maybe I ought to consider leaving a little stress down at the office and not bring so much home. And initially I bristled, and I thought, he's saved, he's full of the Holy Spirit, I better listen to him. So, uh, and, and, but the, the point is this, is that sometime, and I told Landon this, I said, uh, Landon, even Jesus needed to get away from time to time. And so there were times where Jesus pulled away from the crowd. He never quit his ministry. He never left off big picture. But there are times where Jesus went to recalibrate. And some of those times he'd take his closest followers with him. There were times where Jesus said no to the demands of the masses, but he took his followers. And so in verse 7 you see this, uh, just kind of a picture of that. Jesus goes across the sea. He steps back from the growing controversy, and he's going to do some ministry where he's not going to have to put up so much with some of the the resistance of the religious leaders. But I love the fact that his disciples just wanted to go wherever he went. And friends, this is the beauty. I'm just going to speak into our lives this morning. Some of you have struggled recently. Am I where I'm supposed to be? You say, Jeff, how do you know that? Do you have a word? No, I'm a pastor. That's just where where people live. You know, don't you get restless sometimes? Should I be at this job? Should I be uh, with this person as we're pursuing marriage? Should, should I be at this church? Do I need to be in this city? And, and we, are, we typically view God's will in the, in the terms of where. 
we're like, where do I need to be? Or what, do I, what am I supposed to do? But ultimately, God's will really just resides in a who. And, and the greatest question that all of us must continually ask is, Jesus, you are the who of the Father's will for me. What are you doing right now? Because that's what I want to get in on. And sometimes he's, he's, he's sprinting, he's, he's ministering in a frenzy and demand comes and he wants you to take part in a hectic uh, season where there's just seemingly too much coming at you that you can handle it. You just have to lean hard upon him in those seasons. And at other times he just he, he seemingly says, yeah, I don't want to do anything major right now. I just want to sit and I just want to be with you. And boy, you talk about type A's, that's our nightmare. Like, what, do you, what do you mean stand still? What, won't the earth stop spinning if I'm not doing something? And, 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 but sometimes Jesus just wants to rest at the well. And other times he wants to introduce you to other people in his kingdom. And so who is really the issue of God's will, not so much where? And I want to tell you something. If you're thinking the lie that, well, okay, the where of God's will must be out there somewhere for me, uh, just be wise with that. Jesus wanted his disciples just to be close to him. People ask me all the time, Jeff, what's, God, what's, what's God's will for my life? And the first place I start is this. I say, um, tell me about your intimacy with the Lord right now. And oftentimes it never gets past that. Because intimacy with the Lord is a little subjective. It's not always that practical. And most people, because we're typically, you know, industrious Americans, and we think, well, no, I, what I'm really talking about is I, I, I just need to do something for the Lord. Well, let me just say this. None of us need to be doing anything for the Lord if we're not abiding with the Lord. With the Lord is more important than for the Lord because he doesn't need my help. I mean, he really doesn't. Relax, okay? He really doesn't need your help. You're not going to believe this, but the kingdom did wonderfully before you were born. It was incredible. And it's, it's, it's going along fine right now, whether you're at the top of the game or you're not so much. What Jesus actually says to us is, hey, I, I just, I'm going to make this about you because I want you to make it about me, and so let's just be close together. I'm go, disciples, I'm going to go across the sea. And the disciples said, can we go? So you've got close followers. Brothers and sisters, it's fine if you're a singer. It's fine if you're a teacher. It's fine if you're a stay-at-home mom. It's fine if you're a preacher or a missionary or an intercessor. Those things are awesome. A lot of that is really what you do because who you are basically is you're, you are in your identity. You're, you're part of the bride of Christ. You're, you belong to Jesus. And your identity is in him, not what you do for him. And so they were going across the sea and dis- close disciples, that's really all they want. They don't care if it's up the mountain or in the valley or across the sea, but they just want to be close to the master. And so that's what close followers are. And some of you are here today, and I want to commend you I want to commend you that you're learning that no matter what is going on concerning your external inheritance, concerning all this stuff on the outside, he's, he's really teaching you how precious the internal inheritance is. That's the one that's going to last forever, by the way. The internal inheritance is the one that endures forever. So the close followers gathered, but so did the curious fans. Um, verse 7 towards the end down into verse number 8. And, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon and so on and so on. Why was the great crowd coming? Why were the curious fans coming? Don't miss the verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, what all had he been doing? Well, I don't have time to go back and parse through chapters 1, 2, and the beginning of 3, but let me just tell you, the fame of Jesus was going about because he was doing the supernatural. 
He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. I don't think at this point he had raised the dead yet, but that's coming. And he was challenging verbally the established authority of the religious leaders. And he was showing love and compassion. Uh, he, he was living the Sermon on the Mount in front of all the people. And they weren't used to seeing that in the rabbis. And a lot of the rabbis would quote, quote former rabbis. But when Jesus talked, he spoke as one that had authority, not like the scribes who would quote other leaders or previous leaders. And so there was something about Jesus. And it wasn't all simply personality and kindness. He was doing works that the world had not seen. Remember this, John the Baptist didn't work any miracles. He took the countryside by thunder, but he did it with his voice. Jesus comes in, and along with his disciples, and they are casting out demons, and the demons say, we know who you are. And Jesus is saying, shh. And he's showing authority over sickness, over disease, over affliction, and ultimately over death. And because of that, the crowds were growing. Now let's check our heart here. We've all heard it said, and maybe some of us have even said it, that it would be superficial to try to bring people in through some spectacular display of the supernatural. Here's my answer to that. Not necessarily. Friends, we are living in a day where our culture in America expects the church to be impotent. Why, Jeff? Why is that so? Because for the most part, we are. And so they're seeing it, and they don't expect us to be anything other than what (laughs) we're portrayed as in our culture, just a bunch of sour Bible thumpers. That's that's the average Christian caricature. Why ought I pound you? And it's just that kind of nonsense, man. And they expect us to be angry, and they expect us to be judgmental, and they expect us to be loveless. But the one thing they don't expect for us to do is to cure the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. They they don't expect that. Why? Because we don't expect it. We don't expect it. Listen, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm just loud. I'm not angry. But what I'm saying is this. The reason, in part, that it's not happening is because the church herself doesn't believe it is to happen. So we have a generational inbreeding of doubt and faithlessness when it concerns this issue of healing. But when Jesus was healing and the apostles were healing and the disciples were healing, the Bible says the unbelieving would come out of places like Tyre and Sidon and the coastlands and wherever there there was word that Jesus was there. You say, Jeff, but their motives were impure. Yeah, they're unbelievers. How could they have a pure motive for Jesus? He has to foster that and create that in him by sovereignly working grace through them. We we don't get to patrol people's motives. We have to say our job is to abide, to worship, to proclaim, and to serve and to fulfill Jesus' prophetic word where he said, the works that I do, you will do, and more than I do, you will do. And I, I don't see that happening like I want to see it in my life. And you probably don't either. I think in the last day, as last days, where I, th- I think any discerning Christians c- should affirm that the enemy clearly seems to be ratcheting up his game. Anybody want to argue with that? I mean, I'm not challenging you, but I-, I do think, to me, that's obvious. Wickedness is abounding at a level that's exponential. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, 
what used to take 10 years to go from a really horrible thought to activity to legislation is now happening in 12 months. And it's just growing and growing and growing. And, and I do see the activity of Satan. I do also see that the human heart is wicked and desperately wicked. And I, I get all of that, but the fact of the matter is it feels like we're just careening towards the end of the age. So as the enemy ups his strategy, do you think, and I mean this as reverently as I can, do you really think God's stuffing his hands in his pockets and shrugging? Should we not expect that if the enemy's going to take it up a notch, forgive the horribly inadequate verbiage I'm using here, but if the enemy's not going to, if he's going to take it up a notch, do you really think God's going to let that go untested? God will move in ways towards the end of the age. Read the book of the Revelation. That's not like we see things right now, and it's not even like we saw things in the New Testament times. There's clearly a movement of God to defy unbelief in the world, and not just simply verbally through great preaching, but through demonstration of the power of God. And so we should be expecting, seeking, pursuing, praying for, fasting over, and receiving, and then obeying by faith the call to enter into people's burdens with them in a demonstration of God's power over sickness, over affliction, over all of the spiritual um, uh, issues that come against us, mental, emotional. I do believe with all of my heart, I believe this. Forgive me if you don't believe it, and I'm not here to, to, to say that you know, I'm the, I'm the example of this, but I'm telling you, I can't fail to believe that God is able. And because he is able, he's not teasing us. I believe he's willing. Now, how do all of the dynamics of a moment of healing and deliverance take place? I don't know. I go back to my organic understanding of the scriptures that say that all things that God does through his people are done through the corridor of faith. We have to pursue, trust, grow, humble ourselves, and receive. And at some point, you release, even to the point of saying, God, I don't know if you're going to do this or not, but I know that you've called me to believe you for it. We take that horrible nagging, well, what if it doesn't happen? off the paper. Forget it. It's a tool of the enemy. Well, what if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't happen? And immediately fear comes in and hesitation. And we say, well, I don't want to go through that because that would be embarrassing or humiliating or dishonor the Lord. And so what do we do? We sit and guess what? It still doesn't happen. So the result is the same either way. I'd rather trust God. I mean, man, I'm so off target here, but just bear with me. When I read through the Psalms, I want to learn to pray like David wrote songs. He'd say, Lord, how long? How long, Lord? He'd say to himself, why are you so disquieted? Why are you so disquieted? So, I mean, he, David would argue with God and he'd argue with himself. And basically it's because he's in a conflict, a crisis of faith, because he, he's not seeing happen what he knows God can do. But David didn't just get defeated and sit back and say, well, God's sovereign. God's sovereign. God wants it to happen, it'll happen one day. Listen, I love you, my Calvinist friends, but please, confine your Calvinism to your soteriology, but don't let it drive your ministry. Don't let it drive your approach to human need and the fact that God has put you in the midst of people that need you. Don't throw on God what God has handed to you. So, the crowd grew, why? Because Jesus was healing. What else? Well, because Jesus was casting out demons. What else? Because Jesus was doing it over and over and over again, and so were the disciples. 
So the crowds just kept growing and growing. I'm going to tell you something. A handful of people will come to hear some good music. A smaller handful will come to hear some decent preaching. But when Jesus starts bringing people up out of wheelchairs, when Jesus starts straightening spines, when Jesus has got an oncologist scratching her head on a Monday because the, the uh, a biopsy from the week before no longer makes sense because the person's healed. Yes. Let, let me tell you something about Friday night. I won't, I, won't, I won't tell your name, but we have a lady here um, who's walked with the Lord and developed a, a keen intimacy with the Lord. And she's an athletic coach at one of our county schools. And uh, she had a torn rotator cuff, and it was really affecting her ability to do her job with uh, the, the girls that she leads in a high school athletics. And uh, to the point where she, she couldn't lift her hand. And so she comes Friday night, and she wrestled a little bit with a call to come forward because didn't know if we were actually calling for people to come and for torn limbs and stuff. It was primarily sickness or spiritual deliverance. But she came forward. She was prayed over. They laid hands on her, and she didn't notice anything immensely different. And she left, had a good time worshiping and everything. And then I believe it was the next day or the day after, she, she went to do something, and just natural instinct, she, she just did it. And she, hey, hey, hey. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> She got me before service, and she's telling me all this, and I'm rejoicing everything. She's looking at me, she said, you don't get what I'm saying. You do not get what I'm saying. I'm telling you, I did it. And I was like, no, no, I get it. I was just like, I, I want to get in on it with you. I mean, it's, but listen, who did that? You know what? There's something in our heart that says, well, it must have been some kind of coincidence. Something probably medically happened when she was sleeping during the ensuing hours after the prayer meeting. I get so sick of that junk. Why is it so hard for us to say, Jesus, we ask you to do something. Jesus, we expect that you're going to do it. And Jesus, when you do it, we're going to praise you and not be embarrassed about it. Thank God for doctors, man. I'm, I'm not against medical and, and approaches, but good night alive. The vast majority of the world doesn't have access to that stuff. All they have is Jesus, and guess what? They're seeing a lot more healing than we are. I don't know where I am in my outline anymore. I better finish. I see what time it is. Okay. Go down to verses 9 and through 12 with me. Last point, two strongholds crumbling. I'm just going to hit this. The two strongholds are physical affliction and demonic oppression. I'm not even touching on the, the demonic today. I'm, I'm just dealing primarily with the physical. But what I, what I want to do in this portion is just to establish an understanding that Jesus doesn't, has to, doesn't have to ask permission. Uh, he doesn't have to obey natural law. He doesn't, he doesn't have to say, well, the doctor told you what the in, end of the, uh, the road is. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to amen anybody. He is the amen. amen. And so when I'm looking at verses 9 through 12, look at the expectation of Jesus. Remember, he's withdrawing with his disciples to the sea, coming up on the shoreline, and look at the expectation of Jesus in verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. <laughs> I like this. Sometimes I see the works of Jesus through a ministry standpoint. One of the things you got to do in ministry is you have to see what happens long before it happens. 
you have to be able to forecast something before it gets to you. And if you don't, you're always behind the eight ball, you're always apologizing, you're always dropping the ball. And so one of the, and it's not just because he's omniscient, I get that, that is quite the advantage. He's, he's, he's seeing the crowds in the natural, as the son of man, he's seeing the crowds and he's like, they are really coming. They are coming and they're gonna come straight to me because they're carrying that one that one's stooped over. She's got an issue of blood. This boy is violently oppressed by the enemy. Uh, this one over here is grieving. And this one over here is not of sound mind. They're, they're just going to keep coming. So he says to the disciples, hey, as soon as you all get to the shoreline, uh, get a boat ready because I'm going to get in the boat and just push me out a little bit. Because Jesus knew they weren't going to probably wade out into the water. The expectancy of Jesus, the expectation was that because of what he was doing, people would come to him. They may not be serious disciples, but they're curious. Jesus will work through an unbeliever's curiosity to meet them at that moment so they, they move from the curious to eventually becoming the serious. And if we Stay on this line of being curious about the Holy Spirit, curious about the supernatural work of God, as if it's a novelty, something we can live with, something we can live without. If we just stay on that safe line, that comfort zone, cushioned Christianity, we're going to miss out on a lot of what the Lord's going to do because it, it seems that the revelation of Scripture teaches that when God begins to move in the supernatural way, it grabs the attention of people and they move from being curious to becoming serious. Uh, forgive me, and you don't have to agree with me on this. I never mandate that you agree with me when I give my opinion. If I give scripture, you ought to agree with it. But on this, I'm just going to tell you what Jeff thinks on this one. I believe that if you and I will get serious at Newbridge about pursuing the Lord for a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that he will bring himself great glory by working through a congregation. We are, we are denominational refugees here. We are now officially non-denominational. And non-denominational churches are actually churches comprised of spirit, uh, denominational refugees. I'm not going to do it, but you know we have former Episcopalians in here, former Catholics, former Methodists, former Presbyterians, former Baptists, former Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, American Baptists, uh, Full Gospel Baptists, Missionary Baptists, Ad Nauseam, I mean it's just Baptist, Baptist. And, and, and we've got Pentecostal, we've got Church of God, Assemblies of God, we've got people from the Christian Church, and they've all just come together as denominational refugees, and the heart cry of all of us is, man, we really want Jesus without all the junk in the middle. We just want Jesus. And I believe if we will jettison all our denominational weight and, and just say, man, I don't want to carry that luggage. You go to the airport and they say, your bag's five pounds overweight and you, you're going to have to pay $50. You know what you do. You zip that sucker open and you start taking junk out that you don't want to take with you. We need to do that in our spiritual lives. Like, man, that's just too heavy. The price is too much. I ain't going to carry that anymore. And we, that was actually pretty good. Somebody write that down and email me. <laughs> and so what do we need to do? We need to just jettison our doubts. 
approach it brand new like a child. Jesus says, you want to go into the kingdom? You got to come like a little child. I'm going I'm to say this. I'm going to apply that in a different way. If you want to go further into the kingdom, you've got to go like a little child. It's not just getting saved, it's going forward with him. Why? Because children naturally, instinctually believe, and adults are skeptical, and we naturally doubt. So if we'll pursue him, and what I was going to say is this, I just believe he's willing to entrust this simple, unimpressive assembly, good people, all of us loving the Lord, but we are not that impressive. And I believe if we'll just remain unimpressed with ourselves and call out to the glorious God of heaven, that he will entrust a working of of healing revival here. It's not going to come if we're curious about it, but it will come if we get serious about it. And so, the expectancy of Jesus was that people are going to come, here they come, it's going to be big. The compassion of Jesus. This tells you why the crowd was coming to the extent where he was concerned they'd crush him. He had healed many. It's right there. Most churches are in decline in America. Did you know that the only segment of Christianity that is growing in the world is the charismatic segment? That's a word that really offends people. Listen, if you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit, which you do if you're saved, you are technically, theologically, a charismatic. Why? Because the charismata are the gifts, the endowments of the Holy Spirit. And if you have him, you have the charismata. And so, those who have embraced the gifts and are operating, it's the only segment of Christianity globally that's growing. Unfortunately, my roots are in a denomination that is really atrophying. And Baptists, no matter what the stripes, Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, uh, the churches in that, that group, precious people love the Lord, but the statistics, their own statistics say we're shrinking, we're baptizing fewer, we're not reaching more. And I, I think that part of it is, is because there is an absence of power across the board in the body of Christ when we, in, in those places where the need for the supernatural gifting of the Holy Spirit is either diminished or denied completely. And so I'm just going to tell you, I need him. I need him. I, I, I woke up today needing him more than I've ever needed him in my life, and I got a feeling tomorrow is going to top today. And so we, we see that Jesus healed many, and then it says, this is the second stronghold, uh, well, he, he healed many, he had diseases, or excuse me, those who had diseases were pressed in all around him to touch him. And so here was the expectation. Jesus said, I'm going to be in the midst. I'm going to be there with my disciples. Um, all of those that need healing, they're going to press into me, and that's what I've been doing, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to heal people. You're going to have to hire a team of very skillful lawyers to talk you out of why he doesn't do that anymore. I'm telling you, he does. He does, he will, if we move from curious to serious. The second stronghold is the demonic. I'm going to touch on it, and then we're going to, a matter of fact, worship team, come on up, because that'll cause me to finish. The authority of Jesus. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. They, they would fall down in whatever body they were inhabiting, and they cry out, you're the son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make it known. So the demons recognized the personhood and the power of the Son of God. And Jesus did not want them on his PR team saying, he's the Son of God. He didn't want any demon-possessed person doing that. So he commands the demons in these people, and he says to them, shut up. Do 
not speak a word on my behalf. What does that show us? He's got authority. I will come back to this issue of demonization, not today, but I'm going to tell you this. I'll whet your appetite. I know for a fact my life was demonically oppressed for at least a decade prior to coming to Christ. Some of you are living out these battles with maybe yourself or those that you love, and you're fighting it as if you're wrestling against flesh and blood, but you're not. And so this morning, I'm going to give the broadest invitation I've ever given. I want our ministry team and our elders to be ready. I'm going to pray against doubt and fear and pride that will keep you seated with an unmet need. And then I want you to come. If you need healing, say, Jeff, are you going to heal me? Nope. I don't heal people. I can come into the process along with others. By the way, you can pray the same thing I pray. You don't have to go to seminary for any of this. I'm going to say, Lord Jesus, if you were here among us and this lady came forward, you'd heal her. See, that's where it all starts. If Jesus was standing bodily right there, and you walked forward, trusting him to heal you. This is a test of what you think of his heart. Do you really think he'd say, no, go sit back down? No, you know he wouldn't. So it's faith. It's faith.